0: Section thirty four of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume twelve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume twelve. Section thirty four. Selected excerpts by Alexandre Dumont, Jr., Part One. The Playwright is Born and Made From the Preface to a Prodigal Father Of all the various forms of thought, the stage is that which nearest approaches the plastic arts, inasmuch as we cannot work in it unless we know its material processes, but with this difference, that in the other arts one learns these processes, while in playwriting one guesses them, or, to speak more accurately, they are in us to begin with. One can become a painter, a sculptor, a musician, by sheer study. One does not become a dramatic author in this fashion. A caprice of nature makes your eye in such a way that you can see a thing after a particular manner, not absolutely correct, but which must nevertheless appear to any other persons that you wish to have so think, the only correct point of view. The man really called to write for the stage reveals what is an extremely rare faculty in his very first attempts, say, a farce in school, or a drawing-room charade. There is a sort of science of optics and a perspective that enables one to draw a personage, a character, a passion, an impulse of the soul, with a single stroke of the pen. Dramatic cheating of the eye is so complete that often the spectator, when he is a mere reader of the play, desiring to give himself once more the same emotion that he has felt as one of the audience, not only cannot recapture that emotion in the written words before him, but often cannot even distinguish the passage where the emotion lies hid. It was a word, a look, a silence, a gesture, a purely atmospheric combination that held him spellbound. So comes in the genius of the playwright's trade, if those two words can be associated One may compare writings for the stage in relation to other phases of literature, as we compare ceiling painters with painters of pictures for the wall or the easel. Woe to the painter if he forgot that his composition is to be looked at from a distance, with a light below it. A man without merit as a thinker, a moralist, a philosopher, an author, may turn out to be a dramatic author of the first class. That is to say, in the work of setting in motion before you the purely external movement of mankind, And on the other hand, to become in the theater the thinker, the moralist, the philosopher, or the author to whom one listens, one must indispensably be furnished with the particular and natural qualities of a man of much lower grade. In short, to be a master in the art of writing for the stage, you must be a poor hand in the superior art. That dramatic author who shall know mankind like Balzac, and who shall know the theater like Scribe, will be the greatest dramatic author that has ever existed. Translated for A Library of the World's Best Literature by E. Arrhenius Stevenson An Armed Truce, from A Friend of the Sex The following conversation in the first act of the play takes place in the pleasant morning room of a country house near Paris, the home of Monsieur and Madame Leverde. Monsieur Laverde is asleep in his chair. The speakers are, Madame Leverde? a coquettish, sprightly lady approaching middle age, and young, Monsieur de Rion, a friend and neighbor. Madame Levedet is determined to marry off de Rion advantageously, and as soon as possible. Unfortunately, he is a confirmed bachelor, not to say woman-hater, whose cynicism is the result of severely disappointing experiences. Under that cynicism, there is, however, genuine respect, and even chivalry as to the right sort of woman, the superior and sincere type, which he does not happen very often to encounter. Let us come to serious topics while we are alone, my friend. And apropos of them? Are you willing to be married off yet? Pardon me, my dear lady. At what hour can I take the first train for Paris? Now listen to me, at least. What? Here it is two years since I have called on you. I come to make you a little visit of a morning, in all good friendship, with a thermometer 40 centigrade. I am totally unsuspecting. All I ask is to have a little lively chat with a clever woman, and see how you receive me. A simple, charming little girl, musical, speaks English, draws nicely, sings agreeably, a society woman, a domestic woman, all at the choice of the applicant. <laughs> Yes, and pretty and graceful and rich, and, by the by, one who finds you a charming fellow. She is quite right there. I shall make a charming husband, I shall. I know it. Only thirty-two years old. All my teeth. All my hair. No such very common detail the way young men are nowadays. Lively. Sixty thousand livres income as a landed proprietor. Oh, I am an excellent match. "'Only, unfortunately, I am not a marrying man.' "'And why not, if you please?' "'It would interfere severely with my studies.' "'What sort of studies?' "'My studies of women.' "'Really? I don't understand you.' "'What? Do you not know that I am making women my particular, my incessant study?' And that I am reckoning on leaving some new and very interesting documents dealing with that branch of natural history? A branch very little understood just at present, in spite of all that has been written on the topic. My friend, I cannot sacrifice the species to the individual. I belong to science. It is quite impossible for me to give myself wholly and completely, as one certainly should do when he marries to one of those charming and terrible little carnivora for whose sake men dishonor themselves, ruin themselves, kill themselves, whose sole preoccupation, in the midst of the universal carnage that they make, is to dress themselves now like umbrellas, and now like table bells. So you really think you understand women, do you? I rather think I do. Why, just as you see me at this instant, At the end of 5 minutes' study or conversation, I can tell you to what class a woman belongs, whether to the middle class, to women of rank, artists, or whatever you please. What are her tastes, her characteristics, her antecedents, the state of her heart? In a word, everything that concerns my special science. Really? Will you have a glass of water? Not yet, thank you. I suppose, then— YOU ARE UNDER THE IMPRESSION THAT YOU KNOW ME, TOO. AS IF I DID NOT. WELL, AND I AM WHAT? OH, YOU ARE A CLEVER WOMAN. IT IS FOR THAT REASON THAT I CALL ON YOU EVERY TWO YEARS. WILL YOU KINDLY GIVE ME THE SUM OF YOUR OBSERVATION IN GENERAL? YOU CAN TELL ME SO MUCH, SINCE I AM A CLEVER WOMAN. THE TRUE, THE TRUE, THE TRUE SUM? Yes, simply that woman in our day is an illogical, subordinate, and mischief-making creature. In saying this, Durian draws back, and crouches down as if expecting to be struck. So then, you detest women? I? I detest women? On the contrary, I adore them. But I hold myself in such a position toward them that they cannot bite me. I keep on the outside of the cage." MEANING BY THAT WHAT? MEANING THAT, THAT I AM A FRIEND OF THE SEX, FOR I HAVE LONG PERCEIVED THAT JUST AS TRULY AS WOMEN ARE DANGEROUS IN LOVE, JUST SO ARE THEY ADORABLE IN FRIENDSHIP WITH MEN, THAT IS TO SAY, WITH NO OBLIGATIONS, AND THEREFORE NO TREASONS, NO RIGHTS, AND IN CONSEQUENCE NO tyrannies. ONE ASSISTS, TOO, AS A SPECTATOR, OFTEN AS A COLLABORATOR IN THE COMEDY OF LOVE. A man, under such conditions, sees before his nose the stage tricks, the machinery, the changes of scenes, all that stage mounting so dazzling at a distance, and so simple when one is nearby. As a friend of the sex, and on a basis of friendship, one estimates the causes, the contradictions, the incoherences, of that phantasmagoric changeableness that belongs to the heart of a woman. So you have something that is interesting and instructive. Under such circumstances, a man is the consoler, and gives his advice. He wipes away tears. He brings quarrelsome lovers together. He asks for the letters that must be returned. He hands back the photographs. For you know that in love affairs, photographs are taken only in order to be returned, and it is nearly always the same photograph that serves as many times as may be necessary. I know one photograph that I have had handed back by three different men, and it ended its usefulness by being given for good and all to a fourth one, who was not single. In short, you see, my dear madam, I am above all the friend of those women who have known what it is to be in love. And moreover, inasmuch, just as Rochefoucauld says, as women do not think a great deal of their first experience, why, one fine day or another. You prove to be the second one. No, no, I have no number, I. A well-brought-up woman never goes from one experience of the heart to another one without a decent interval of time, more or less long. Two railway accidents never come together on the same railway. During the intervals, a woman really needs a friend, a good confidant, and it is then that I turn up. I let her tell me all the melancholy affairs in question." I see the unhappy victim in tears after the traitor has called. I lament with her. I weep with her. I make her laugh with me. And little by little I replace the delinquent without her seeing that I am doing so. But then I know very well that I am without importance, that I am a mere politician of the moment, a cabinet minister without a portfolio, a sentimental distraction without any consequences. And some fine day after having been the confidential friend as to past events, I become the confidential friend as to future ones. For the lady falls in love for the second time with somebody who knows nothing of the first experience, who will never know anything about it, and who, of course, must be made to suppose he represents the first one. Then I go away for a little time, and leave them to themselves, and then I come back like a new friend to the family. By and by, when the dear creature is reckoning up the balance sheet of her past, when her conscience pours into her ear the names that she would rather not remember, and my name comes with the others, she reflects an instant, and then she says resolutely and sincerely to herself, "'Oh, he does not count?' "'My friend, I am always the one that does not count, and I like it extremely.' "'You are simply a monster!' Oh, no, 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 I am not. According to your own account, you have no faith in women, wretch, ungrateful creature, and yet it is woman who inspires all the great things in this life. But somehow forbids us to accomplish them. Go out from here, my dear Durion, and never let me see you again. Durion, rising promptly and making a mocking bow, My dear lady. No, I will not shake hands with you. Then I shall die of chagrin. That's all about it. Do you know how you will end, you incorrigible creature? When you are fifty years old, you will have rheumatism. Yes, for sciatica. But I shall find someone who will embroider me warm slippers. Indeed, you will not. You will marry your cook. That depends on how well she cooks. Again, farewell, dear madam. No, stay one moment. It is you who are keeping me, so look out. Let me have really your last word on the whole matter. It is very easily given. There are just two kinds of women, those who are good women and those who are not. Without fine distinctions? Without fine distinctions. What is one to do in the case of those who are not good women? They must be consoled. And those who are? They must be guaranteed against being anything else. And as to that process of guarantee, I have taken a patent. Come now, if you are playing in parlor theatricals, say so. What are you trying to be, Lovelace or Don Quixote? I am neither the one nor the other. I am a man who, having nothing else to do, took to studying women just as another man studies beetles and minerals. Only I am under the impression that my scientific study is more interesting and more useful than that of the other savant, because we meet your sex everywhere. We meet the mother, the sister, the daughter, the wife, the woman who is in love, and it is important to be well informed upon such an external associate in our lives. Now I am a man of my time, exercised over one theory or another, hardly knowing what he must believe, good or bad, but inclined to believe in good when occasion presents itself. I respect women who respect themselves. It is not I who created the world, I take it as I find it. And as to marriage, the day when I shall find a young girl with the four qualities of goodness of heart, sound health, thorough self-respect, and cheerfulness, the squaring of the conjugal hyperpotenus, then I count for nothing at all my term of waiting. Like the great Dr. Faust, I shall become young again, and such as I am, I give myself to her. My friend, if this same young girl of whom you have been speaking, and, by the way, I know her just as well as you do, really unites these conditions, I do not believe she does, though I shall see very soon, why, then, I will marry her tomorrow. I will marry her tonight. But in the meantime, as I have positively nothing to do, if you happen to know a self respecting woman who needs to be kept from a bit of folly, why, I am wholly at your service. Translated for a Library of the World's Best Literature by E. Arrhenius Stevenson. Two Views of Money from The Money Question. The following passage occurs in the first act of Dumas's play. The characters include the young parvenu Jean Gerard, the aristocratic Monsieur de Creole, and several others, all guests in the drawing-room of the country-house of Madame de Rieu. In course of the conversation, Gerard refers to his father, at one time a gardener on the estate of Monsieur de Chaze. Jean Gerard Oh, yes, yes. I have got along in the world, as people say. There are people who blush for their fathers. I make a brag of mine. That's the difference. René de Chazé. And what is Father Gerard nowadays? Oh, I beg your pardon. Jeanne, don't be embarrassed. We keep on calling him Father Gerard all the same. He is a gardener still, only he gardens on his own account. He owns the house that your father was obliged to sell a while ago. My father has never had but one idea, our father Gerard, and that is to be a landowner. I bought that piece of property for him, and he is as happy as a fish in the water. If you like, we will go and take breakfast with him tomorrow morning. He will be delighted to see you. How things change, eh? There, where a while ago we were the servants, now we are the masters, though we are not so very proud for all that. Countess Savelli aside he has passed the rubicon of parvenus he has confessed his father now nothing can stop his way jeanne to de i have wanted to see you for a long time but i have not been sure how you would meet me i would have met you with pleasure as my uncle would have met you one cannot utter reproaches to a man who has made his own fortune except when he has made it by dishonest means A man who owes it to his own intelligence and his probity. He uses it worthily. Everybody is ready to meet kindly, as you are met here. Jeanne. Sir, it is not necessary that a man should use his fortune nobly, provided it is made. That is the main thing. Madame Duryu. Oh, oh, Monsieur Girard. There you spoil everything that you have said. Jeanne. I don't say that of my own case, Madame. But I say just what I say. Money is money, whatever may be the kind of hands where it sticks. It is the sole power that one never disputes. You may dispute virtue, beauty, courage, genius, but you can't dispute money. There is not one civilized being, rising in the morning, who does not recognize the sovereignty of money, without which he would have neither the roof which shelters him, nor the bed in which he sleeps, nor the bread that he eats, "'Whither are bound these masses of people crowding in the streets? "'From the employee sweating under his too-heavy burden, "'to the millionaire hurrying down to the barousse behind his two trotters. "'The one is running after fifteen sous, the other after one hundred thousand francs. "'Why do we all have these shops, these railroads, these factories, "'these theatres, these museums, these lawsuits between brothers and sisters, "'between fathers and sons, these revelations, these divisions in families?' these murders, all for pieces, more or less numerous, of that white or yellow metal which people call silver or gold. And pray, who will be the most thought of at the end of this grand race after money? The man who brings back the most of it. Ah, nowadays a man has no business to have more than one object in life, and that is to become as rich as possible. For my part, that has always been my idea. I have carried it out. I congratulate myself on it. Once upon a time, everybody found me homely, stupid, a bore. Today, everybody finds me handsome, witty, amiable. And the Lord knows if I am witty, amiable, and handsome. On the day when I might be stupid enough to let myself be ruined, to become plain Jean as before, there would not be enough stones in the Marmontre quarries to throw at my head. But there, that day is a good way off. And meantime, many of my business acquaintances have been ruined for the sake of keeping me from ruin. The last word, too, the greatest praise that I could give to wealth, certainly is that such a circle as I find myself in at present has had the patience to listen so long to the son of a gardener, who has no other right to their attention than the poor little millions that he has made. Dourdieu, aside, it is all absolutely true. Every word that he has been saying— gardener's son that he is he sees our epoch just as it really is madame duryeux come now my dear monsieur de creole what do you think of what monsieur gerard has been telling us monsieur de creole i think madame that the theories of monsieur gerard are sound but sound only as to that society in which monsieur gerard has lived until now a world of speculation whose one object naturally ought to be to make money. As to wealth itself, it brings about infamous things, but it also brings about great and noble things. In that respect, it is like human speech, a bad thing for some people, a good thing for others, according to the use they make of it. This obligation of our state of society that makes a man wake up each morning with taking thought of the necessary sum for his personal wants, lest he take what does not belong to him, has created the finest intelligence of all the ages. It is simply to this need of money every day that we all Franklin, who began the world by being a printer's apprentice, Shakespeare, who used to hold horses at the door of the theatre which later he was going to immortalise, Machiavelli, Who was secretary to the Florentine Republic at fifteen crowns a month, Raphael, the son of a mayor d'Auber, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a notary's clerk and an engraver, one who did not have a dinner every day, Fulton, once upon a time a mechanic who gave us steam, and so many others. Had these same people been born with an income of half a million livres apiece, there would have been a good many chances that not one of them would ever have become what he did become. To Monsieur Girard, This race after wealth, of which you speak, Monsieur Girard, has good in it, even if it enriches some silly people or some rascals, if it procures for them the consideration of those in a humble station of life, of the lower classes, of those who have cash relations with society, On the other hand, there is a great deal of good in the spur given to faculties which would otherwise remain stationary. Enough good to pardon some errors in the distribution of wealth. Just in proportion as you enter into the true world of society, a world which is almost unknown to you, Monsieur Gerard, you will find that a man who is received there is received only in proportion to his personal value. Look around here where we are without taking the trouble to go any further, and you will see that money has not the influence you ascribe to it. For proof, here is Countess Savelli, with half a million francs income, who, in place of dining out with millionaires besieging her house every day, comes quietly here to dine with our friends the Siderieux's, people without title, poor people measured by her fortune, and she comes here for the pleasure of meeting Monsieur de Chazé, who has not more than a thousand crowns income but who, for all the millionaires in the world, would never do a thing a man ought not to do. And she meets here Monsieur de Roncourt, who has a business of fifteen hundred francs, because he gave up his fortune to creditors who were not his own creditors. There is Mademoiselle de Roncourt, who sacrificed her dowry to the same sentiment of honor. Yonder is Mademoiselle Dieu, who would never be willing to become the wife of any other than an honest man. Even if he had for his rivals all the Croesuses present and to come. And last of all, one meets me here, a man who has for money, in the acceptation that you give the word, the most profound contempt. Now, Monsieur Gerard, if we listen to you for so long a time, it is because we are well bred people, and besides, you talk very well. But there has been no flattery for your millions in our attention and the proof is that everybody has been listening to me a longer time than to you. Listening to me, who have not, like you, a thousand-franc note to put along with every one of my phrases. Jean, who is that gentleman who has just been speaking? Durio. That is Monsieur de Creole. Jean, the railway director? Durio. Yes. Jean, going to Monsieur de Creole. Monsieur de Creole... I HOPE YOU WILL BELIEVE THAT I AM VERY GLAD TO MEET YOU. Creole. I DARE SAY YOU ARE, MONSIEUR. Monsieur de Creole, as he utters the words, turns his back upon Gerard, and steps aside. TRANSLATED FOR A LIBRARY OF THE WORLD'S BEST LITERATURE BY E. Aranias STEVENSON END OF SECTION 34. RECORDING BY TODD